This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Oliver O'Donovan. I am Professor of Christian Ethics and Practical Theology for a few weeks more. Uh, and this is the sixth of what has been a very memorable and successful Gifford Lecture Series given by Professor Dermot McCulloch at the University of Oxford on Silence in Christian History. And the title of the sixth lecture is Silence in Modern and Future Christianities. Professor McCulloch. Thank you, Oliver. And uh, I have many thanks, actually, to give. First, to the uh, committee of the Gifford Lectures for inviting me, which was all of six years ago, I think. I, I remember the, the, the second email got to me when I was sitting on the steps of the Pantheon in Paris in a break between filming uh, and discussing what the subject might be. Uh, so many thanks to the committee, particularly Jay Brown, who has been... Uh, my uh, chief contact in all this, uh, to all my hosts who have given some marvellous hospitality, and particularly to Lynn Hyams, who has uh, been a wonderful administrator, always ready with an answer to all my impertinent, anxious, worried questions. Also, great uh, gratitude to the Institute for Advanced Studies, who made me a fellow while I was here, and Susan Manning uh, in charge of it. Uh, that's been a great base to have and to the Royal Society of Edinburgh, who, who gave me splendid hospitality last night, but also very much yourselves for being uh, such an attentive audience with such lively questions. Uh, it's been a joy to uh, be discussing this subject with you over six lectures. And now we try and draw together all the strands from the previous five and look to the present and to the future in silence terms. Uh, some of you here may have been involved in set-piece interviews on radio or television on location. And if so, you will be familiar with the concept of the wild track. Now, belying its, belying its restless name, the wild track is in fact the recording of silence. And it forms a welcome and relaxing finale to what is normally a much longer, more tedious and exhausting process than interviewees realize when they rashly agree to be interviewed. It comes right at the end. It's an absolutely essential part of the production process, since it provides an oral patching for any untoward noises that you need to cut out, or it becomes the accompaniment to the panning shots which television loves. Now, my most entertaining experience of the wild track was after a sequence of interviews and location shots with one of the brethren of the Benedictine monastery of Saint-Vendry in Normandy. And at the end of our long interview, the sound man, as usual, asked us to stand in complete silence for three minutes while he captured his wild track. I much relished observing our monastic interviewee's fascination with Roger Lucas's statuesque custodianship of the microphone amid the medieval cloister, as 21st century technology demanded its own version of what Otto of Cluny had decreed long before. 
Uh, Father Christophe was a man of much wisdom and experience of the world, and he would have enjoyed the irony of that. But he would also have appreciated the deeper lessons to be learned from the wild track. Its point is that every silence is different and distinctive. Each is charged with the murmurs of the landscape around it, with the personalities of those who have entered it and remain present within it, together with the memories of conversations which have come and gone. It's been well said that silence has no opposite and is the ground of both sound and the absence of sound. And that was exemplified in the visit of the Blessed Virgin Mary to the remote village of Nock in the rural west of Ireland in August 1879. Fourteen people in the village were witnesses of a vision of Our Lady on the gable of the local Roman Catholic parish church. Our Lady was accompanied by St. Joseph and a third figure whom a village consensus identified as St. John, the beloved disciple, while the Lamb of God himself looked on. Now, the knock appearance is one of the very few from the 19th century which has gained official recognition from the Vatican, confirmed by a visit from that great Marian enthusiast, Pope John Paul II, very early in his pontificate uh, in the centenary of the vision in 1979. Now, Our Lady put in hundreds of appearances in 19th century Europe, unprecedented in their frequency. And they're a witness that that era was as much a time of re-enchantment as of disenchantment after the French Revolution, as Western Christianity renewed itself. And Our Lady was a woman of her time. She zestfully embraced the new democratic spirit in the egalitarianism of her appearances to the humblest and most marginal in European society. And she also, also showed the readiness of the period's first-wave feminism, to make her views known on the political and theological issues of the day. And that's what makes her visit to Nock so interesting. She said nothing. At Lourdes, in 1858, she had brusquely exercised the prerogative of the Queen of Heaven to transcend Western logical categories, announcing that I am the Immaculate Conception. At Marpingen, in 1876, she had stooped to accommodate herself to the rules of European syntax in the statement, I am the immaculately conceived. <laughs> Three years later, at Nock, she showed that she knew her Wittgenstein, for, for whereof she could not speak, she remained silent. Now, why might that have been? The latest and most subtle of scholarly considerations of Our Lady of Knock provides some very convincing reasons. By examining the, the circumstances of County Mayo and the Catholic Archdiocese of Tuam in the previous decades. It was a poverty-stricken, deeply divided region, still traumatized by the memory of the Great Potato Famine of the 1840s. The Catholic Church was riven with disputes between clergy and faithful laity over its demands for financial support. There was widespread lay anger that clergy were so hostile to militant Irish nationalism. And by her silent vigil, Our Lady of Knock demanded reconciliation, regrouping amid the bitter noise of provincial Catholic politics. Moreover, Our Lady's silence answered an acute question in the west of Victorian Ireland. 
What language should she speak? At Lourdes and Marpingen, she experienced no problem over this. She, she used the appropriate local patois to convey her emphatic theological message. That was impossible in Nock in 1879 because the village was one among many battlegrounds between a dying Irish Gaelic and English. Many Irish people felt that Gaelic had become a language for losers, which was why they were adopting English at a very fast rate. In the circumstances, silence was the best policy for Our Lady. The taciturn appearance of the Blessed Virgin Mary on a church wall was not simply the naive construction of simple rural folk who had just discovered the excitements of the magic lantern, as some cynics have suggested in the past. Silence, as both these examples show, is always contextual. We've seen it steal gradually into the consciousness of the people of Israel through the silences of the temple liturgy, a growing appreciation of the silence of the cosmos, the peculiar concerns of the second prophet known as Isaiah in a time of rebuilding, restoration. Judaism was formed in dialogue with the cultures around it. Jews who talked to Greeks picked up Plato's fascination with the silence of the divine. They meditated again on their own creation stories with that thought in mind. They linked first things to last things, and they found silence in both. And then came Jesus, whose distinctive, original voice, I've argued, can still be heard through the conversations of his followers which have shaped the gospel narratives. Jesus' actions, such as his retreat to the wilderness, his lack of words at crucial moments in his ministry, are purposeful silences which united him with that minority report of the Tanakh. The silences of Jesus do not seem to have greatly resonated with early Christians, the sort of Christian communities in which Paul of Tarsus played such a prominent part, but they played very great fruit in later Christian centuries. For a century or more, Pauline or Catholic Christianity contended with many other Christian identities, which Catholic Christians labelled Gnostic. But both sides fished in the pool of Hellenism, which lent the new faith so many different probings of silence. But the Gnostics further stressed themes which Pauline Christianity definitely rejected. The cosmic importance of laughter, the irrelevance of martyrdom. But what Catholic Christianity could not escape was a thought sprouting from the meditation on divinity by both Pythagoras and Plato. God was not the passionate God of the Jews and their Tanakh, merciful and loving one moment, angry and righteous the next. He was such perfection that he was beyond description, beyond words, beyond even a human concept of silence, since he was beyond being. The Christian problem was how to relate this idea to the stories in their sacred literature about Jesus, because it was not a particularly prominent thought within that sacred literature. And the resulting four centuries of increasingly bitter debate never generated answers which have succeeded in satisfying all those who call themselves Christian. Never. Christianity, as it emerged in the later second century, excluded its Gnostic forms. 
It was a religion of congregational worship, prayer and praise and noise, and occasional public witness in martyrdom at the hands of the Roman state, proudly remembered martyrdoms. Only gradually did an ascetic or solitary tradition find a general home in this church. Asceticism came from the eastern frontiers of the Roman Empire, found its first home in Syria, just as the Catholic structures of the church were taking comprehensive shape. We've seen that just like negative theology, its sources were more likely to be from outside the biblical deposit of faith than from within. It would not have been obvious until the end of the 4th century that this movement was going to find a respectable place in the Catholic Church throughout its Mediterranean range. And it's only in the 4th century that we can hear the practitioners of, of, of silence reflecting on what they were doing and conveying to others in devotional texts what was involved. We've met Evagrius of Ponticus, that first provider, portrayer of a progression of, from public prayer to meditation to contemplation. All the while, the church's steady conversation with the world around it continued, along with Christianity's plagiarism of other experiences of divinity beyond itself. Dialogues with Greeks, particularly Neoplatonists, whose discussion of the absent, silent God grew ever more radical, and then with the ancient religions to the east. Both these two diverse sources had long known the truths of the ascetic, world-denying life, which now also found a home in Christianity. As we've heard in so many different mystical voices in the course of these lectures, the same metaphors sound in mystic discourse again and again, like a muffled peal in English change ringing. Light, water, silence. Metaphors which the religious versions of Platonism and Eastern religions had discovered long before Christianity, out of the constant human striving to describe the indescribable. Christians reshaped or rediscovered these truths for themselves, always conscious of their worship of a God whom they experienced in threeness as well as oneness. Repeatedly, they returned to the idea of union with this confusing three-one God, that union called theosis in Greek. And the process of embodying theosis in world Christianity was not at all straightforward, as we've seen. The theological, political upheavals of the 5th century brought multiple disruptions to the Christian world, which have never been healed. Of the two greatest exponents of silence and theosis in the church, Evagrius was eclipsed, forgotten in most of the Christian world. The anonymous Miaphysite hid his identity behind the name of Dionysius the Areopagite. Only in the 9th century did pseudo-Dionysius come to play a part in the thinking of the West. And even then, pseudo-Dionysius contended with Augustine of Hippo, Augustine's lifelong fascination with words, and ultimately also with the West's inveterate fascination with the individual imagination, the active imagination, the, the imagination which eventually brought us back the novel. Not only the Council of Chalcedon tore Christianity apart, Eastern, Western Chalcedonians drifted apart in their monastic practice. And I remind you that one of the most under-recognized, but one of the most significant differences between the Eastern Church and the Western Church resulted from the monastic founder in the West, St. Benedict's dislike of wandering monks. 
which meant that wandering monks were virtually excluded from the Western Church while remaining honoured in the East, even though they continued to worry bishops up to the present day. They were still there. And when the Byzantine Church was riven by the iconoclastic controversy, wandering monks were a significant factor in the victory of the icon. And so were ordinary lay people, for whom the icon could represent a personal road to divinity. The dividing line between the professionally religious and the laity was much more blurred in orthodoxy than it was in the West. And those two elements in orthodoxy meant that contemplation, search for union with the divine, were never confined to the formal institutes of institutions of the, Western, of, the, of the Eastern churches. The search was open to anyone in the Eastern churches who made the effort to take it up. All you needed was a picture, the icon, which was so much more than a picture. It was a little gate to heaven. And in the West... Meditation and contemplation became far more associated with a specialist technology, the art of reading, Lectio Divina. Now, given that con combination of circumstances in its past, Eastern spirituality has always been more democratic, less clerically dominated than that of the Latin West. The 16th century reformations in the Western Church were an effort to redress the balance for Westerners, to get rid of clerical dominance. But that success was, to be uh, at the least, very partial up to a point, Lord Copper. Protestant congregations threw off the old clericalism of Rome only to embrace a new clericalism, together with one of the noisiest forms of Christian history, Christianity ever known, the least attentive to the silence of God in Christian history, Protestantism. Word overwhelmed silence, and attempts to the contrary within Protestantism, like that of Ulrich Zwingli, achieved very little success within magisterial Protestantism. The problem was that in the course of their efforts to rid the church of what they saw as the great clerical cheat perpetrated by late medieval Catholicism, Protestants had destroyed the institutions which had cherished contemplation, and they had no idea how to replace them. The problem remains today, both in the inveterate word-centred noisiness of evangelical Protestantism, and equally in the constant striving after joyful, spirit-filled celebration which has so far characteristic, characterised the worship life of worldwide Pentecostalism. It's not a characteristic which is going to change soon. Because after all, one of the great attractions and strengths of Pentecostalism for so many in the world is that amid lives of poverty, deprivation, powerlessness, worship is almost the only possible area for celebration and emotional release. It's perfectly understandable that that should be so and admirable. But we should also remember another form of modern Christianity. In 21st century Asia... Millions on millions of Christians in the Indian subcontinent and in China are effectively Nicodemites, crypto-Christians. Their experience is yet to be reintegrated into the life of the world's public Christianities. And what is going to be the result? I suspect the first result will be a joyous expression of a lot of previously suppressed noise. But as yet, we can't know. As Christians welcome crypto-Christians back into the open, it would be worth remembering that just like negative theology, just like the monastic life, 
The inspiration for Nicodemism is not principally indebted to the Bible. It is to Gnosticism, Hermeticism, the converso Jews of Iberia, Spain and Portugal that it traces its outlook, its modes of behaviour. So what will emerge from those crypto-Christianities? Some of the radicals of the Reformation privileged, as we've heard, spirit over paper pope, the Bible. And they soar away through Protestant hullabaloo, notably the Schrenkfelders, the Quakers. Now maybe they have lessons to teach the heirs of magisterial Protestantism. Anglicans too, I'm pleased to say, have their own distinctive contribution to make because of the very confused history of their communion. It set them in a very odd relationship to the Reformation uh, as a whole. They're, they are part of the Reformation, but they're not part of the Reformation. And so Anglicans have long been able to hear other voices. Anglican scholars, attentive to the worldwide traditions of contemplation, have made gentle Anglican protests against Protestant noisiness, which others, I think, could savour, adding, adding to the general recapture by the Christian West of the silence of God in the later years of the 20th century. Listen to that wonderful New Testament scholar uh, whom Oliver will know well, Canon John Fenton, uh, alas now dead, but was remembered as remarking to Oxford Ordinands in one lecture, the most obvious characteristic of God is his silence. He does not cough or mutter or shuffle his feet to reassure us that he is there. And from the same generation of Anglicans, even more pithily expressed, is a celebrated remark, often diversely credited, but deserving its correct attribution to that wise and crustily conservative spiritual guide, Canon W.H. Vanstone, who said, the church is like a swimming pool in which all the noise comes from the shallow end. <laughs> Good old Vanstone. Contrarywise, one particular modern variety of breaking Christian silence is much to be cherished. It's a heartening feature of Christianity in the last 150 years that it's produced so many whistleblowers on the discredited, on the discredited or misconceived features of the Christian past and present. The credit for that, I'm glad to say, should primarily go to historians who have provided the tools for the whistleblowers. The Enlightenment practice of history part science, part storytelling, part pragmatic observation of human nature, is a great gift to Christian truth. And it's found a fruitful ally in a new frankness in the public discussion of sex, which the West owes to that otherwise frequently misguided pioneer of psychiatry and psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud. Frequently misguided, but in this, a good thing. He made us talk about sex. Most, many modern churches in the Western tradition would dearly love not to speak about homosexuality at all, but they end up talking about little else. <laughs> Very many of the silences in Christian history have been about sex, but by no means all. There's been also a great transformation in Christian understanding of slavery, the beginnings of an equal transformation in Christian acceptance of guilt in anti-Semitism. Those involved in whistleblowing seldom get thanked at the time. James Parks was an Anglican clergyman who in the 1930s was one of the first Christians to point out the historic anti-Semitism of Christianity rooted in the New Testament. And Parks got off comparatively lightly 
hovering in jobs in the Church of England, which in his time would have been construed as marginal. But Parks's life also demonstrates that whistleblowers are not infrequently awkward by nature, sometimes even antisocial characters. But their very awkwardness, their refusal to accept convention and lazy commonplaces, becomes their providential virtue in a good cause. In Christianity's recent travails about sex, just like those about anti-Semitism and slavery, are always really about another issue, authority. Historically, church leaders have loved to claim a particular authority to make pronouncements on society, doctrine, and the church. And they've done so by reference to another sort of authority, allied as they see it, that of the biblical text. And that means that historical investigations of ecclesiastical authority are just as potentially explosive as anything to do with sex. There can be few aspects of research in ancient history which are as, li as likely to stir emotions than investigations by historians of Christianity's earliest years. The same is true for historical research on Christian churches with shorter pedigrees than others. They were therefore founded in periods where the abundance of documentary sources of all varieties makes for a great deal more triangulation than will ever be possible on the early church in its first two centuries. Two examples, both which emerged in the 19th century uh, United States, the Mormons and the Seventh-day Adventists. They experienced particular problems over historical analysis of their origins, not least because they developed authority structures with as high claims to obedience and conformity as anything that the Vatican might make. Any challenge, therefore, is explosive and liable to result in casualties. It's particularly acute in those churches because of changes in their culture, which their very success has brought them. In the earliest days of the Adventists or Mormons, very few of their members had experienced higher education, with its nasty tendency to nurture enlightenment conceptions of, of history and how history works in relation to theology. Whereas over the last century, more and more of the Adventist and Mormon faithful have achieved Western-style prosperity and sent their children off to be educated at university level. It's not surprising that some of these children have turned an interested but historically analytical eye on the founders and foundation literature of their churches. The Seventh-day Adventists experienced a growing crisis from the 1960s through to the 1980s, particularly actually concentrated in Australia and New Zealand. And that resulted in the expulsions of several professional historians from their ranks and scores of clergy. The tide only began to turn among the Adventists in 1979 when at last they got a professionally trained historian to produce a textbook for their theological colleges on the history of the church. And gradually they had to accept what you might call triangulation on their history. Other documents being brought to bear on the views of the founders. An equal problem for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So far, the leadership of the Mormons has repeatedly found a simple solution, simply to excommunicate such Mormon members who do raise these problems. The classic case was Fawn M. Brodie, uh, whose biography of the prophet Joseph Smith I commend to you. It is a wonderfully clear-eyed, though affectionate portrait of the founder of the Mormons, uh, written in the 1940s, and she was expelled for writing it in 1946 and never uh, allowed back. The most dramatic case of recent years occurred in September 1993 when six Mormon intellectuals and academics 
were simultaneously and very publicly excommunicated or disfellowshipped, and their crime had been publicly to advocate various revisionist views in present-day Mormon doctrines and past history, all of which relied on an Enlightenment view of how history works. All those thus excluded regarded what they were doing as what for the benefit of a church which they loved. But they had all come up against a different view of authority and truth, summed up before the final expulsion of the six by the Mormon apostle Russell M. Nelson. He said, in some instances, the merciful companion to truth is silence. Some truths are best left unsaid. No historian would agree. <laughs> Such instances are powerful arguments as to why the discipline of history should feature in the Gifford Lecture series. Repeatedly, religious leaders, whether in the Vatican or Salt Lake City, find that their efforts to silence dissidents armed with historical evidence have the temporary success and the long-term failure of the child on the seashore defending a sandcastle against the tide. It's interesting watching ecclesiastical leadership struggling to find new ways of dealing with this new reality, which is not going to go away. Maybe I'm affected by professional hubris, but I'll speculate as to whether we're witnessing worldwide the opening stages of a new axial age in the understanding of religion and religious authority. I'd indeed suggest that this possibility is far more grounded in historical reality than Carl Jaspers's very speculative picture of a first axial age. We might have to call this the first real axial age. <laughs> well, if that's felt to be too ambitious a claim, it's at least worth celebrating a new ecumenism of Christian faith, which is not making the mistakes of the 20th century ecumenical movement in diverting its energies into committees and agreed doctrinal statements. This is the ecumenism of Christian experience, which peers across ancient divides does not ignore such barriers, but sees the wealth that has been hidden the other side of the fence. Thanks to the researches, the researches of historians, the full breadth of the Christian past flows into a common stream. So Evagrius Ponticus has been rescued from his long exile amid Syrians and Armenians, amid anti-Chalcedonian Christianity. And he's celebrated once more by the spiritual descendants of the Chalcedonians who condemned and expelled him because of what he can say about the practice of silence. Accompanying him back into honor and appreciation are such anti-Chalcedonian giants of the spiritual life as uh, Isaac the Syrian of Nineveh. And not even the recognition of the evasiveness of pseudo-Dionysius has newly soured his reputation in Chalcedonian circles. Another significant feature of the last century has been the democratization of spiritual exploration. For so long, Western Christianity has centered it on the clerical orders and the regular life. But now the quest for silence has moved beyond the, the formal boundaries of Christian churches, even unites adherents of different world faiths for the first time since the spiritual explorations of the Gnostics. Hospitality has always been a basic Benedictine principle. And now that monastic hospitality has blossomed into a veritable industry of retreats and guides to spiritual direction. Monasteries appeal because of their patent counterculturalism. They're devoted 
to what Damascius, the Neoplatonist, called that yonder in a self-centered world. And they're not alone as Christian assets stretching out into a wider society. Christian churches of all sorts, even the most Protestant ones, have been very good at creating holy places. And in many cases, they've simply been the latest custodian of sacred sites which stretch back much longer than that. Holy wells, for instance, just like the monastic life, would struggle to find much justification in scripture. But that's not hindered the fact that they're everywhere in the landscape of the former Christendom. And in some shrines across the Christian world, it's not easy to be silent, but there are plenty of others. Recently, I I read uh, a, a wonderful gazetteer just published of sites in England, Scotland, and Wales. And there are hundreds of them. And it's clear that they're now much more visited and cherished for spiritual purposes than at any time since the 16th century reformations when the two kingdoms, England and Scotland, tried to do their best to get rid of the lot. Once more, such places may be the salvation of a Christianity not dependent on words. It's easy for Christians to sneer at the bulging shelves on spirituality in bookshops in the Western world. Christians would be better to be grateful for the countless, perhaps sometimes misguided, searches for seriousness which those represent. In particular, there's that shared search for silence. Structured religion, not just Christianity, has its formidable armory of approaches to silence to aid societies which have been getting intolerably noisy for most of their inhabitants since the first spread of steam power in the Industrial Revolution. A secular campaign, not just a Christian campaign, but a secular campaign for silence, has been growing since the first campaigns, uh, complaints of Thomas Carlyle in the mid-19th century. Its targets constantly change with changes in technology. So a major concern of Theodor Lessing, the German-Jewish philosopher, the great first campaigner for noise abatement, was the omnipresent beating of domestic rugs in public. Not now, I think, a major worry for (laughs) us noise abatement characters. Silence has also become the highest symbol of community action in secular liturgy. It unites all of divers' faiths and none with the growth of the public remembrance of the dead in silence. Now that's something without really any precedent in previous periods of recorded world history. But it's the mark of an irretrievably pluralist society in which any specific religious statement is bound to exclude someone. So what do you do? You go for silence. Everyone here, I'm sure, has been to some meeting or committee where you've had a minute or two of silence for some dead friend or colleague. And then remember the larger public silences which began in Canada exactly 100 years ago as the news of the Titanic's uh, sinking came and then coalesced after 1919 in remembrance of all those numbers who had died in the course of a war about which it was difficult to speak whose moral justification seemed, in retrospect, so dubious to many. Silence is allied to wordlessness, and wordlessness is allied to music. And music has made sporadic guest appearances in these lectures. Let's just concentrate on it for a wee while. Music has a uniquely ambassadorial role between silence and words, because it stretches between and melts into either of them. 
Uh, there's a composer, an uh, American composer, called Michael Pizarro. Now, par excellence, the composer who's creatively experimented with silence in music in the wake of the better-known experiments by John Cage in earlier decades. And Pizarro expresses this function of music with admirable precision. I'll quote it. Music traces the border between sound and silence. It erases and redraws the boundary with a fine line or erects a wall which is soon knocked down, thus determining the breadth of the expanse by building obstructions. We measure distance by limiting it. We grow by pushing this limit as far as we can imagine. That's a secular meditation. But Christians know that tense border zone. Uh, they would put it between word and spirit. But I think that border zone is rather similar. Music has emerged in modern Western society as one of the great sustainers of spiritual exploration, one of the great ambassadors of Christianity to a wider world. There's a completeness, a givenness about a musical composition, well captured in a passing remark of the great Anglican theologian Bishop Charles Gore, Bishop of Oxford. Well, <clears throat> Gore once went to a concert performance of one of Bach's Brandenburg concertos, <clears throat> and he was heard, as he emerged afterwards, gruffly to observe, if that is true, everything must be all right. Which seems to me rather an improvement on Mother Julian's all should be well and all manner of things should be well. Anglicans have good reason to point complacently to their development and protection of choral evensong in cathedrals after the Reformation. Thomas Cranmer's prayer book service, put to musical uses of which he would undoubtedly have disapproved, have become one of the principal present-day vehicles of devotion for many who can't accept the form of words which are the propositions of Christianity. Such attenders may still discover and explore their Christian identity through music. And in fact, they have... They have been attending in ever greater numbers through the first decade of the 21st century. Cathedral numbers in England, 37% up in the last decade. Music has been the colour, often the backbone of the liturgy through most of Christian history, policing that frontier zone between eternity and the fragility of human words. Many of its practitioners have followed Ambrose of Milan, seeing it as effectively a form of regulated celestial silence, banishing any rival noise. Liturgical music has been one of the glories of the Western tradition, taking its own direction out of the common inheritance of chant, of chant which East and West held in common until the 14th century. Their chants sounded much the same, then they went off in different directions, and in the West into polyphony, uh, and in the middle of that polyphony, the setting of the Mass. And it's precisely because the words of the proper of the Mass, the unchangeable part of the Mass, are so familiar to Catholic priests and people that the composer, the performer, the listener can enjoy maximum freedom to soar away from the words in the music and beyond. Of course, that is precisely why those sensitive musicians, Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin, brusquely banned such distractions from the hearing of words. But the mood of disapproval did not start with them. It started with Desiderius Erasmus, that, that spiritual theologian. And uh, briefly, it was as characteristic of reforming papal Catholicism as of Archbishop Cranmer, until routed by the Counter-Reformation. 
One can have some sympathy with the austerity of the reformers when dealing with some 18th century European mass settings, which exhibit infuriatingly operatic and deeply inappropriate settings of that congregational plea for peace in the Agnus Dei, Dona Nobis Pacem. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart is a prime offender in this respect. There is a decorum in, to be observed in sacred music which such solecisms violate. And I will not point to more modern instances in which, which that decorum has been forgotten. Well, my message in these lectures might charitably be seen as standing alongside the classic negative theologies of silence devised in the early church. An apophatic approach to divinity, which portrays what God is not, rather than what he is. Another way of viewing my report on Christian history is as a necessary work of stripping the altars, or as the clearance of a house before a very good party begins. I've certainly made many negative observations, not just in the sense of the stories which I've told of institutional evasion, shame and forgetfulness, but in the way in which I've tried to show you that silence itself has been constructed and reconstructed in the life and thought of the church, in ways in which most of the writers in the library of Christian scripture would not have expected or wanted. I've questioned many of the ways in which authority has evolved in the church. And I've drawn attention to stories which suggest that the fixity of doctrine is not all it seems. None of the more negative silences which I've surveyed are unique to Christianity. They're products of the way in which human beings, beings construct the world around them, negotiate their way through the embarrassments and opportunities created by our search for power and control over others and over ourselves. Yet still the tidy-minded, particularly those who style themselves Christian traditionalists, are upset. They howl in perplexity and anger because they feel the patterns of their world to be unravelling. Perhaps they'd be better to follow the example of Holmes's dog and recognise that there is nothing unfamiliar in these changes. These have been questions for churches through 2,000 years. Apophatic Christianity, negative theology are expressions of a religion of spirit, of looking inwards. Spirit may well find itself privileged over scripture, which is a collection of words, even if they are seen as inspired words. Reading a book emphasises just one of the Christian senses, and it is sight. Paying attention to silence involves a different sense, hearing. Wittgenstein's dictum was effortlessly anticipated in the Christian tradition by Isaac of Nineveh, the theologian of awareness and wonder. He said, love silence above all things because it brings you nearer to the fruit that the tongue cannot express. And then from out of this silence, something is born that leads to silence itself. That, that fruit might be discovered in the manner of the first Quakers out of the silence of their meetings. It was that silence which freed them to consider the questions of authorship and formation in the biblical text, numbered them among the first Christians to see through the biblical writer's unthinking acceptance that slavery as an institution was a permanent feature of the sublunary world. At the very least, there's a tension in these two ways of approaching the sacred, spirit and text. Now that is not to say that an apophatic Christianity could ever be detached from the Christian Bible. How could it be? 
That would be like the act of denying one's parents. The relationship between parent and child is one that we cannot abrogate. It is like no other relationship. It is not dependent on shared interests or opinions or even liking. It's just there, just so, a given. That is the true meaning of canon. There can be no Christianity without the canon of Scripture. And the Christian life has characteristically demanded a searching and researching of it. The great gift of the Enlightenment to Christianity, contextual criticism of the text, has not denied that demand, only enriched it. There are three very important ways in which I believe the generality of mood music in the New Testament to be plain wrong on homosexuality, anti-Semitism and slavery. In stating matters that bluntly, I'm heartened by the example of the early Quakers, who, while they feistily challenged what they saw as wrongly conceived views of the authority of Scripture, did so in pamphlets and treatises oozing with scriptural texts at every pore. And looking further into the past, I also observe how Martin Luther, the great prophet of sola scriptura, felt free to play fast and loose with the plain meaning of Scripture and its canonical boundaries in his translations into German. And that's because he was so fiercely engaged with Scripture. He created loaded readings of key phrases in the Psalms when translating that text into German. He scorned the book of Esther and on one occasion called the writing of James an epistle of straw. He felt free to relegate a whole category of biblical books into a reserved uh, category called Apocrypha. And we can push beyond Luther, backwards, to find help from the man who formed Luther's mature theology, Augustine of Hippo. Augustine represents that age in the 4th and 5th centuries when Eastern and Western Mediterranean Christianity were already drifting apart. He represents that break, his consuming interest in his Latin literary inheritance, his shaky Greek, his very selective knowledge of Greek philosophy. Augustine hardly influenced the future of Greek theology at all, in contrast with his profound influence on the Latins. Nevertheless, on one occasion, Augustine did comment positively on a very important Eastern use of Scripture, which moves beyond the West's active meditation in the Lectio Divina towards the practice of contemplation in the East. And it was in the course of a famous letter which he wrote on the Lord's Prayer, addressed to Anicia Faltonia Proba, one of those serious-minded and fabulously wealthy ladies who were the backbone of the church as the Western Empire crumbled. Augustine reminded the Lady Proba of the practice of contemporary ascetics in Egypt, who concentrated their contemplation through the use of rapid prayers thrown like javelins so that the alert attention which is necessary in prayer does not fade and grow heavy during long, drawn-out periods of time. These sudden, savage launches of short prayers against Satan, the great distractor, have come to be known as arrow prayers. And so that passage of Augustine is often taken as referring to arrows. It does not. Augustine speaks of the throwing of javelins. Have a look at the Latin, if you don't believe me. Nowadays, the jav javelin evokes hearty school sports days or the Olympics on television rather than the horrors of war. 
and the British will be equally familiar with the javelin's cheerful miniature cousin, the dart. For Augustine, the javelin, or dart, was a weapon of death, and a much more basic one than the bow and arrow, because of its physicality. You just thrust, that's all you do. And we lose the brute, unmediated physicality of Augustine's metaphor if we shift from that original meaning, javelins, darts. Now, Augustine, the inveterate Westerner, is describing the form of prayer which much later blossomed within hesychasm in the Greek East, particularly in the form of the Jesus prayer. He doesn't actually mention in that letter the use of scripture in his invocation of javelin prayer. But the connection is made by that great and now happily familiar Greek contemplative Evagrius Ponticus, who was born about the time that Augustine died. Evagrius, in one of his writings, recalls that greatest moment of Jesus' silences, which was also the greatest contest in his ministry before his final contest on the cross, his temptations in the wilderness. Evagrius uses exactly the same metaphor of javelin or dart as Augustine had done before him. He reminds his readers that Jesus, I quote, passed onto us what he did when tempted by Satan. In the moment of struggle, when the demons attack us with pricks and darts, we must answer them with a verse from Holy Scripture. You see, Jesus had entered, ended Satan's chatter with deadly thrusts from the text of the Tanakh. The contemplative should follow his example. Now, the arrow prayer or javelin prayer should not be equated with that nervous tick of evangelical Protestant Christianity, the proof text from Scripture, which seeks to deal with everyday situations as if, as if the Bible were a collection of instructions in a computer manual. The historian Thomas Fudge has a crisp dismissal of such misuse of Scripture. He says, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. <laughs> As meditation gives way to contemplation, and maybe also before meditation gives way to contemplation, the ground base in a Christian context will be the Christian's consciousness of Scripture, shooting out bursts of words like, la like lava from a queasily dormant volcano. And in other approaches to the silence of the divine in different great religious traditions of the world, other sacred texts will bear the same function, to be parents of the countless millions who have been formed in their images. All of them fire their darts into the silent ecumenism which approaches the divine. Now, any negative theology has to take into account the positive reality of sin, which ordinary observation seems to suggest is one of the distinctive characteristics of the human race, along with humanity's sense of wonder and its capacity for laughter. Let's recall... Donald McKinnon, whom I spoke before. Donald McKinnon's reflections on the profound sin which came from deliberate deception, built into the career of a theologian as celebrated as Paul Tillich once was. Can a negative theology or a theology of silence carry the burden of combating evil in human society? Well, the example of the Quakers, activists and contemplatives alike, might suggest that it can you might look to Thomas Merton in the 20th century, who started in Trappist contemplation but moved on to something much more active, still fueled by silence later on. Behind them, the ghosts of the Desert Fathers 
helping to rebuild the torn fabric of Egyptian society. Behind them, spirits which fade smilingly behind the text of the Bible, as far back as Diogenes of Sinope, squatting in his wine jar and telling Alexander, the latest aspirant master of the world, to step out of his sunlight. The task of combating sin in the world is laid on humanity, not on humanity's creator. If silence has no contending opposite, then neither has divinity. Least of all is the polar opposite of divinity, the power of evil. That proposition is the most respectable reason why Catholic Christianity set its face against Manichaean dualism. But negative theology points to the same message. So in the end, I hope to have offered my hearers natural theology as required by Adam Lord Gifford. Among the many silences, both creditable and discreditable, which we've explored, is the assertion heard in Sebastian Frank or John Everard that the inner light is the prime path to the divine, as much as any revelation offered by the paper pope. Now, that doesn't stop Christians finding what they seek in the texts which prompt their glimpses of Jesus Christ. Let's stay with McKinnon, wrestling with the ultimate failure of Paul Tillich as a moral human being. After that dismal contemplation, McKinnon turned his eyes on Jesus' vital decision, made in solitude in the wilderness, to reject the temptation to cast himself from the pinnacle of the temple, the culmination of all his temptations in Luke's Gospel. That same story which we've just heard Evagrius pointing to. Now the point of the tale is that Jesus rejects the quick fix of glory or death, the noisy proclamation of good news, in a jump from the pinnacle. And in this, McKinnon sees the Christ as accepting, I quote, unbearable ambiguity, a refusal to accept the either-or of total emancipation from ambiguity. McKinnon sees all faith as depending on a hardly decipherable mimesis of Christ's faith in God. That is itself human expression of God's total fidelity to himself and his creation. I go on quoting at some length, I'm afraid. I think it's worth it. And this faith of Christ we have most painfully to see as something that if we rest our hope upon it and find in it the source of our flickering charity, we must affirm it for what it was and through the resurrection eternally is, response after the manner of God's being and of human need. No willful resting of an unambiguous triumph over circumstance that will, by its seeming transparency, satisfy our own conceit. So McKinnon's faith of flickering charity, unbearable ambiguity, beckons the seeker of faith towards a resurrection silence. The silence has transcended the din of the triumphant. It may be still enough to nerve those immersed in it to return to the fight against all that is satanic in creation. We began this long exploration with Margaret Atwood's observation that the living bird is not its labelled bones. That same passage continues. What isn't there has a presence like the absence of light. And over the course of these lectures, 
it's possible that you have been persuaded to appreciate the central importance for religious faith of this presence in absence, the divine wild track. Thank you. At this point, ladies and gentlemen, the order of events departs from what has been done in previous, on previous days. Um, there will be no period for questions at this stage to enable meditation to pass into contemplation. Um, but to assist that process, there will be a reception downstairs um, uh, in which, when not contemplating, you may, I'm sure, wish to greet our lecturer and thank him, and perhaps if you feel particularly cheated at not having been offered an opportunity to answer, ask a question, you may um, try one out and see whether you get an answer, <laughs> or whether you're told to step out of his light. <laughs> One other observation, and that is just a reminder that at half past seven tonight in the University Chaplaincy in Bristow Square, uh, Bishop Brian Smith will be leading a discussion, all welcome, on the whole series of these lectures. Now, it's my pleasure as a last word to express our common appreciation to my former colleague, uh, for this 212 series, 2012 series of Gifford Lectures. Uh, an elegant performer, one might even say an entertainer. I'm sure the reference to Les Dawson was not without its point. Dermot has uh, at the same time demonstrated to us unforgettably what a historian might be and might do for the study of natural theology. Not as he did when he first won public attention for his scrupulously researched and game-changing biography of Thomas Cranmer, nor even as he did when he set the English reformers in the context of the wider European Reformation. The good historian has many modes of operation and many uses. Uh, he may be the antiquarian forger of chainmail who will test every link in the suit of armor which we put on, which we've received from our past. But here, this time, the historian has been something very different. Standing foursquare in the present world we inhabit together, he has offered us a re-narration of our, our identity. And here has been an account of the religious roots of the West which has forced us to reconsider ourselves, uh, uh, but not in the light of the great institutions, not in the light of the great structures of thought we have inherited, but in other ways. The historian's narrative can unpick some of the inevitabilities about history. 
it can make the path our civilization has trodden seem sometimes crooked, perverse, questionable. By laying the apparently unconnected side by side, by following the less obvious clue rather than the more obvious one, the historian can suggest unthought-of connections. And if there has been a certain lusty joy in deconstruction from time to time, yet at the same time a thread has been held out to us. Uh, Dermot has pointed us to the silent moment at the very heart of Christianity, the silence surrounding the empty tomb. Or is it really a handful of threads, the polymorphous character of silence that has emerged in a constantly shifting set of oppositions and constellations. Well, that itself has been a clue. We'd be uh, undervaluing the gift you've given us, Dermot, if we went away as though we had received some particularly interesting news report from some particularly reliable source. Uh, You're offering us something not less historical than that, but much less prosaic, uh, more Socratic, perhaps, you're offering us a, part, a path of thought, and we will show ourselves fit for your gift if we determine to think hard, to test the byways and bends on the path you've shown us, and to see perhaps where else it may bring us out. So thank you very, very much. This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh. This production is copyright the University of Edinburgh.